This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like bullshitting ass people. And I'm your ambassador of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblank, Reaper Sutherland, Luke Flying Talker, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troll of the trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. It's July 17, 2022, and the toxic summer continues. So I'm recording this episode on my phone. Why am I recording this episode on my phone? Because my Shure mic, which cost over $200, it's the same mic that Joe Rogan uses, Adam22 uses, uh, a lot of the top podcasters, what they use. It's a Shure mic. Shure is like the Nike of mics. And the mic that I have is specifically for podcasters. Like I said, it's the same one used by Charlemagne the God, same one used by Adam22, uh, it's probably the same one used by Vlad, goddammit. But that Shure that I got that's specifically for podcasters, the USB port in that motherfucker was jiggly, jangly, and it fell in. And I was running around Atlanta and surrounding regions like a chicken with its head cut off trying to find someone, anyone, anybody to possibly remedy this situation like yesterday. And like the rest of the theme of this summer, I'm out of luck. The soonest I heard the turnaround, if I could get somebody to remedy this shit would be Monday. And I record for Happen in the 90s. I did that on Saturday and I record on Sunday, every Sunday for Over the Culture. So I basically said, uh, we're basically in default mode. Let's just go back to the old fashioned droid phone for recording devices for now. Uh, when I got this fucking mic, I didn't get the warranty. I know dumb Steve, but shit. Usually when I get things like this, I'm, I'm just barely making it and probably shouldn't be getting the shit. So I look at it as an investment. It was a shitty investment and it's only a shitty investment because the fucking usb port was jiggly and wiggly and fell in and when i called guitar center i think i just missed my 45 days why the fuck do you have a 45 day policy fucking guitar center you can't give me a full two months if i had a full two months i would have definitely been within the warranty i think i'm at like 50 something now i got that mic in uh, mid-may I think NBA was still in the conference finals. So it's been well over 45 days. I couldn't get my replacement through Guitar Center. Um, So where I'm at now, I have to call the manufacturer or actually send this back to the manufacturer. And I talked to the guy on the phone and he said the turnaround is going to be two weeks. So for this show, I, I have to get back on the phone for at least a little bit and then for happening in the 90s i have to use my fucking blue snowball cumball microphone that i initially used when we first started that show uh now my buddy on the show on happening in the 90s matt he did say that he would lend me his cord because the back of this shore microphone it has a usb port and a what do you call them the xlr that's right 
the XLR connection. So he was going to give me his uh, XLR cable. And all I had to do was get the box. But I was under the impression that the XLR boxes cost just as much as the fucking microphone. Um, eventually, I'm going to have to return this to Shure, the manufacturer, uh, because this Shure microphone is not for sure. For sure. Uh, so, yeah, that just totally falls into the theme of my summer. And also, the day that this jiggly cord or the jiggly USB port fell inside of the microphone that same day I was trying to record I was trying to record for a private invite on voices.com and I've had this premium membership on voices.com since last Thanksgiving they had deals going on every Thanksgiving and around tax time when people get their fucking W-2 returns and all that shit so yeah I've had this premium memberships since last Thanksgiving and I've only had two private invites now typically most of the invites are public which is it's open to any and everyone who has a premium account or better but when you get a private invite they sought someone sought after you someone saw something within you your profile they had a vision possibly and they reached out to you so that dwindles the competition and in this instance, I don't know by how much, but it's a private fucking invite. And I've only had two of them in about a close to a year. So that says something. And the job, the job was for seven racks, seven of them things. Now, mind you, I never get fucking private invites. I hardly ever, hardly fucking ever. In the day I'm about to record for this $7,000 private invite job, I just so happen to have this $200, 200-plus mic just go to shit. Oh, toxic summer. Toxic fucking summer. My car is running better. I just bought the part at O'Reilly. AutoZone, suck a dick. Advanced Auto Parts, suck a dick. Hey World, suck a dick. Specifically, my dick. Suck my dick, world. I just happened to stop by O'Reilly. Oh, it's it's the other name brand place I haven't checked out yet. I already checked out AutoZone. Oh, over $100 per, per, per coil. Advanced Auto Parts. Oh, over $100 per coil. Oh, yeah, we got those, but it's not in our store. You got to order it. It'll be here in like four to five days. Blah, 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 blah. Your life's got to continue to suck. So I just, by chance, checked out O'Reilly and they had the ignition coil for about half that price. And I said, well, fuck it. I got the spinning change. I got it on me. Let's go ahead and get this done. And I didn't call the bullshit mechanic, the mobile mechanic, so I can pay his mobile fees and his goddamn uh, diagnostic fees. Bullshit diagnostic fees. Fuck that shit. I googled, I YouTubed, and I got that shit done my goddamn self. I pulled those ignition coils, and I have three in my car. I have three in my car, and I pulled all of them out. Luckily, one's good, two were bad, so one's replaced. Still got to get the, the other one. Uh, I, I'm nigger rigging through life right now, and I have no problem sharing that with the people, my boys and girls, my brothers and sisters, my niggas. I have no problem sharing that with you because... Shh, this is all I know, being me, and 
I'm not going to subscribe to that black Hollywood fake it till you make it Atlanta shit that runs abundantly. Strife is in my life, but shit, we gonna make it through. It just sucks. Just like the world needs to do to my dick. Fuck you, world. Sorry, just not sorry. I'm the Prince of Pate. As seen in the advertisement. So my car is running. I, I don't have to resort to immediately putting my emergency lights on so people can understand and just roll pie me. I can at least drive and uh, from uh, the outside looking in, I can look like my car can run like it should be on the street or could be on the street for now, for now. But damn, like just swallowing the bullet on that fucking $7,000 job. I just, I couldn't do shit with and I, I tried. I was about to just do it like I'm recording this podcast. Let me just do it on my phone. Send this audition on my phone. Send them a memo explaining everything like, hey, I just had some microphone malfunction. But like, no, I, I got off work. I, and by the way, I had to be at work on the last day of sending the audition. And I figured like I'm going to get hopefully this baseball game ends early and I can just fucking go back home, record this shit on my phone, send them that, send them the explanation of why the quality might not be as good as it will be. But no, by the time I did all of that, I actually recorded on my phone and the job is closed now. I missed the bus. Word to Daddy Mac and the Mac Daddy. Yeah. But my car runs good. And some actual factual good news, though. Over the week, the audiobook is finally here. It's available. My first narrated audiobook. It's on these internet streets, man. And it's called 1,000 Dirty Jokes One Liners for Adults Only. The author, Sins Darth, spelled S E N Z E. And Darth, like Darth Vader, D-A-R-T-H. Yes, the audiobook is finally here. You can get it on Audible, on Amazon. Just Google the shits. It'll probably send you to the Amazon page. And it'll probably be the book because the book's been out for a little longer, about a couple months. It came out in May. But the audiobook, if you see the, the hard copy of the book... You can click, there's a selection where you can click on the audiobook, and there we are. 1,000 Dirty Jokes and One-Liners for Adults Only. Uncensored Comedy, Book 1. Author is Sins Darth and narrator, Steve G. So I'm very proud of this. I've, I've sent in countless auditions for radio promotions, for advertisements, on Voices.com, on ACX, all of that. And finally, somebody heard me knocking. So you definitely got to check this out. It's over five hours long, this audiobook. Five hours long of jokes that you more than likely haven't heard. Maybe, maybe you've heard some of them. Maybe. But I read the whole fucking book the whole book like I said it's five hours so I spent some time with this material and I've kind of been a fan of comedy for most of my life these 30 plus years and a lot of these majority of these 
I have not heard before in my life. Comedic gold it is. 1,000 Dirty Jokes and One-Liners for Adults Only. Uncensored Comedy, Book One. On Friday, Lloyd Banks releases his latest album, The Course of the Inevitable Two. And Lloyd Banks is a rapper's rapper, an MC's MC. I added just about all of this to my playlist. I feel like he's the only active member of G-Unit who still gives a fuck about this hip-hop shit. 50s producing TV shows and selling cognac. Tony Ayo is just, I don't know, out here being Tony Ayo. But Tony Ayo did have a feature on this Lloyd Banks album. Uh, he had a song, it's called Don't Switch, and the song's actually dope. That's on the playlist. Uh, there's a feature uh, with Lloyd, uh, with Dave East and Vado, and that song's Traffic. Uh, he's got Jada Kiss on there, Benny the Butcher, and Conway the Machine. And the course of the, of the inevitable too, man. Uh, if you like good hip hop, if you ever were a fan of G Unit or Lloyd Banks, you gotta check that out, man. I think the bane of his career is that Lloyd Banks never added. He never added to that charisma bracket. Like I said, he's a MC's MC, a rapper's rapper. He's like a, a Chris Benoit in in a regard. He's like a Chris Benoit of rap in a regard because you're so focused on this craft. You just really want to be great at this thing. You want to do these dope moves and these great flips and make the shit entertaining. But you're overlooking the entertainment part in a way. You, you got to have a personality, something for people to grab onto. Your interviews, you can't lull people to sleep. And just like Lloyd Banks interviews, Chris Benoit interviews, and his promos and all of that lulled me to sleep. However, his rapping never ceased to amaze me. So like I said, the course of the inevitable too with Lloyd Banks. Also on Friday, CMG, the label, CMG, the label released an album and it's a collaborative album. It's called Gangster Art, Gangsta Art, and it has Yo Gotti, Moneybag Yo, 42 Doug, ESTG, Black Youngster. Um, I mean, it, it's the Memphis click, Yo Gotti and his people, man. And Yo Gotti, uh, you know, he said his last solo album was his retirement album. I'd like to not believe that because I, I fucks with Yo Gotti heavily. And it's that Memphis trap shit that we've all grown to love. Especially with Moneybag Yo. Fellow Virgo. Moneybag Yo. Oh my god, man. Everything that he is on. On this album. And the album fucking bangs. It's 1 hour and 16 minutes. 27 songs. 27 songs. And there was probably one or two out of the 27 songs I didn't add to my playlist. So yeah, man, if you are a fan of any of those motherfuckers. And Kodak Black, he's got a feature. I'm a Kodak Black fan too, believe it or not. And uh, yeah, man, he cannot stay out of trouble. But anyways, man, check out Gangsta Art with CMG, the label. But all things July 17th. In 1954, construction of Disneyland commences. In 1955, Disneyland televises its grand opening in Anaheim, California. 
1959, North by Northwest, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint, premieres in Los Angeles. In 1987, Walt Disney's classic masterpiece, Snow White and the Seven Doors, is re-released worldwide for its 50th anniversary. And on that same day in 1987, Jaws, The Revenge, as well as Nowhere to Hide premiered in theaters. And also in 87, the initial pilot for Good Morning Miss Bliss airs on NBC. One year later, the series proper would air on the Disney Channel, becoming the first program to be produced by a major television network for cable TV. After one season on Disney Channel, Good Morning Miss Bliss would be retooled into Saved by the Bell, which would air as part of NBC's Saturday morning lineup. In 1990, Boogie Down Productions releases the album Edutainment. In 1992, Honey I Blew Up the Kid premieres, as well as Man Trouble and A Stranger Among Us. In 1993, Guns N' Roses played the final gig on their Use Your Illusion tour. This will be the last time the original band plays together on stage until 2016. In 1994, Bash at the Beach airs on pay-per-view through WCW. Hulk Hogan beats Ric Flair to win the WCW Wrestling Championship. Whoa, brother! In 1996, Kazam! starring Shaquille O'Neal premiered in theaters. And I am one of the biggest Shaq stands, but damn, I have yet to watch this movie, but one day. Also in 96, Multiplicity! starring Michael Keaton premiered, as well as Walking and Talking. In 1998, The Mask of Zorro, starring Antonio Banderas, premiered in theaters, and Family Matters air their final episode. <sighs> what a shitty episode. Oh my god. In 2009, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince premiered. In 2015, Ant-Man, starring Paul Rudd, premiered in theaters, as well as Trainwreck, starring Amy Schumer. In Future, drops Dirty Sprite 2. In 2016, Logic releases Bobby Tarantino, and I actually bought that album. It's a fucking banger. Uh, I'm so sick of people shitting on Logic and calling him lame. Maybe he is lame. Maybe a lot of your favorite lap rappers are lame. They just play it off and put up an air, a front, and you just can't see the shit. A lot of your favorite celebrities are probably big fucking nerds, and that's okay. Anyways, I like Logic, I like Bobby Tarantino, and eat a dick. Suck my dick, world. In 2017, The Muppet Studio is firing the voice of Kermit the Frog, Steve Whitmire, and they blame his unacceptable business conduct. Ugh, why you gotta be a Steve? In 2019, the streaming service Netflix reaches 150 million subscribers worldwide, but with slower growth than forecasted. But more important to me than all of that bullshit, in 1987, the same day when Jaws dropped that shitty sequel and Snow White and the Seven Doors dropped their 50th anniversary release, re-release, RoboCop premiered in theaters. And I remember as a young three to four year old kid going on four, loving me some RoboCop. RoboCop did it for the culture. Today in sports history, in 1902, the Orioles forfeit to St. Louis, having only five players available to play. They then forfeit their franchise back to the AL. In 1922, Ty Cobb gets five hits in a game for a record fourth time in a year. 
1925, Trish Speaker is the fifth person to get 3,000 hits. In 1941, New York Yankee Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak ends in Cleveland. Go Ohio! In 1954, it was the first major league game where majority of a team was black, and that team was the Dodgers. In 1974, Bob Gibson becomes the second pitcher to strike out 3,000. In 1976, the 21st Modern Olympic Games opens in Montreal. 25 African teams, which would later rise to 33, boycott the games due to New Zealand playing rugby in apartheid South Africa. In 1978, New York Yankee manager Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson fight in the dugout after Jackson refuses to bunt, causing Martin to suspend him. In 1979, the 50th All-Star Baseball game aired. The National League wins 7-6 at the King Dome in Seattle. The All-Star MVP is Dave Parker of the Pittsburgh Pirates. In 1988, Florence Griffith Joyner of USA sets the 100-meter women's record. In 1990, New York Yankee Deion Sanders hits an inside park homer. And on that same day in 1990, the Minnesota Twins become the first team to turn two triple plays in a game, but they would lose to the Boston Red Sox one zip. In 2005 at the British Open, Tiger Woods wins his 10th major title, wire to wire, by five shots from Scotsman Colin Montgomery. And in 2018, the 89th MLB All-Star Game is held at Nationals Park in Washington, D.C. The AL beats the NL 8-6 the teams combining for a record 10 home runs, accounting for 13 of the 14 total runs. And that was my half-assed sports report. Coming up, I'm going to talk about the film RoboCop, as it was released on this day in 1987. We'll be black after these messages. Yeah. It's John Black. Bad child on the beat, yeah. Like Betty White. Betty White. This beat, Betty Nice. Ha. Love. I like to keep it low key without the extra hype. See, my name will be known and they gon' spell it right. Bad child on the beat, as a lesson right. Intensify the high, the herb provide when we collectivize. Never spend a minute trying to worry about the when and why. Time is of the essence, either flex or hope for second lives. Only time I'm stepping in the club is when they're checking side. Sprinkle game like cheddar fries, running with some better guys. They dry as a desert tide, my drive won't let it ride. Dedicated years to this shit, how I'ma let it die? I've tried and been denied, my pride, I kept it high. Never got jacked for trying to get it through a skeptic, guys, yeah. Get it right, this is music for the legend type You got to see it in a separate light So do your thing, that's my best advice I'll be on till I'm gone and live long like Betty White Betty White Betty White When you're this good, you set the price Gave my life to this art and from the start I hear them talking about they golden girls, guns and gas Go on, the words I write hit hard like one to grow on Grind so much I should get sponsored by Volcom They ain't heard nothing quite like this in so long Peace to the homies on trial that got told on I'm locked in the system like you into the cold wrong Play this while you're doing your burpees, getting your swole on I'm dedicated like an Art LeBeau slow song Smoke strong to the point I'm getting tunnel vision But all I ever see is all this money that we missing I think we all agree there ain't no time 
time for indecisions I ain't waiting for the day it come my way like main condition Yeah, trying to get myself clear Like I said it right Putting poetry to music, do it every night So do your thing, that's my best advice Cause I'll be gone till I'm gone And live long like Betty White special mention to those no longer with us. Last Monday, we lost British film composer and singer Monty Norman, born Monty Nosivarich on April 4, 1928 in London, England. He was a key contributor to West End musicals in the 1950s and 1960s. He is best known for composing the James Bond theme. Norman died on July 11, 2022 at a hospital in Slough. He was 94 and suffered from an unspecified short illness prior to his death. On Wednesday, we lost American professional stock car racing driver Bobby East. Born Robert John East on December 17, 1984 in Torrance, California, he raced in USAC, ARCA, and NASCAR. During his career in the latter two, East was a member of Ford's driver development program. On July 13, 2022, while filling his car with gas at a 76 gas station in Westminster, California, East was accosted by Trent Millsap, a transient who had a warrant for a parole violation out on him. The two exchanged words and Millsap stabbed East in his chest. He was rushed to the hospital, but died from his injuries short thereafter. Millsap was later found to be hiding in an apartment in nearby Anaheim and was killed in a shootout with Orange County Police. East was 37 at the time of his death. On Thursday, we lost Czech-American businesswoman, media personality, fashion designer, author, and model Ivana Trump. Born Ivana Marie Zelnikova on February 20, 1949 in Gatwaldov, Moravia, Czechoslovakia, she lived in Canada in the 1970s before relocating to the United States and marrying Donald Trump in 1977. She held key managerial positions in the Trump Organization as Vice President of Interior Design, as CEO and President of Trump's Castle Casino Resort, and as Manager of the Plaza Hotel. Ivana and Donald were prominent figures in New York society throughout the 1980s. The couple's divorce, finalized in 1992, was the subject of extensive media coverage. Following the divorce, she developed her own lines of clothing fashion jewelry, and beauty products, which were sold on QVC London and the Home Shopping Network. Ivana wrote an advice column for Globe called Ask Ivana from 1995 through 2010 and published several books including works of fiction, self-help, and the autobiography Raising Trump. On July 14, 2022, at the age of 73, Ivana Trump died of blunt force injury to the torso after falling downstairs at her home in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. A number of politicians and celebrities posted condolences on social media. Connie Hawkins was an American professional basketball player. Born Cornelius Lance Hawkins on July 17, 1942 in Brooklyn, New York, he was a New York City playground legend, nicknamed the Hawk, and was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 1992. Hawkins retired in Phoenix, Arizona, and worked in community relations for the Suns for many years until his death on October 6, 2017, at the age of 75 from cancer. No other cause was given. Diane Carroll was an American actress, singer, model, and activist. 
Born Carol Diane Johnson on July 17, 1935 in the Bronx, New York City, she rose to prominence in some of the earliest major studio films to feature black casts, including Carmen Jones and Porgy and Bess. In 1962, Carol won a Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical, a first for an African-American woman, for her role in the Broadway musical No Strings. In 1974, she starred in Claudine alongside James Earl Jones, for which she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. Her title role in Julia, for which she received the 1968 Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Television Series, was the first series on American television to star a black woman in a non-stereotypical role and was a milestone both in her career and the medium. In the 1980s, she played the role of Dominique Devereaux, a mixed-race diva, in the primetime soap opera Dynasty. Carol was the recipient of numerous stage and screen nominations and awards, including her Tony Award in 1962, and Golden Globe Award in 1968, and five Emmy Award nominations. Carol was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1997. She said the diagnosis stunned her because there was no family history of breast cancer and she had always led a healthy lifestyle. She underwent nine weeks of radiation therapy and had been clear for years after the diagnosis. She frequently spoke of the need for early detection and prevention of the disease. She died from cancer at her home in West Hollywood, California on October 4, 2019 at the age of 84. Carol also had dementia at the time of her death, though actor Mark Kopich, who played her character son on Julia, said that she did not appear to show serious signs of cognitive decline as late as 2017. Johnny Kerr was an American basketball player, coach, and color commentator. Born John Graham Kerr on July 17, 1932, in Chicago, Illinois, he played in the NBA from 1954 to 1966, mainly as a member of the Syracuse Nationals. He later held several coaching and administrative positions before embarking on a 33-year career as a television color commentator for the Chicago Bulls. Kerr died of prostate cancer on February 26, 2009, only hours after the death of fellow Bulls legend Norm Van Leer. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1987, RoboCop premiered in theaters. RoboCop is a 1987 American science fiction action film directed by Paul Verhoeven with a screenplay by Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner. The film stars Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, and Miguel Ferrer. Set in a crime-ridden Detroit in the near future, RoboCop centers on police officer Alex Murphy, who was murdered by a gang of criminals and subsequently revived by a megacorporation, Omni Consumer Products, as the cyborg law enforcer, RoboCop. Unaware of his former life, RoboCop executes a brutal campaign against crime while coming to terms with the lingering fragments of his humanity. The film was conceived by Neumeyer while working on the set of Blade Runner, and he developed the idea further with Miner. Their script was purchased in early 1985 by producer John Davison on behalf of Orion Pictures. Finding a director proved difficult. Verhoeven dismissed the script twice because he did not understand its satirical content until convinced of it by his wife. Filming took place between August and October of 1986, mainly in Dallas, Texas. Rob Bodden led the special effects team in creating practical effects, violent gore, and the RoboCop costume. Verhoeven emphasized violence throughout the film, making it so outlandish it became comical. 
Even so, censorship boards believed it was too extreme, and several scenes were shortened or modified to secure an acceptable theatrical rating. Despite predicted difficulties in marketing the film, particularly because of its title, the film was expected to perform well based on pre-release critic screenings and positive word of mouth. RoboCop was a financial success upon its release in July of 1987, earning $53.4 million. Reviews praised the film as a clever action film with deeper philosophical messages and satire, but were more conflicted over the extreme violence throughout. The film was nominated for several awards and won an Academy Award as well as numerous Saturn Awards. Since its release, the film has been analyzed for themes including the nature of humanity, personal identity, corporate greed, and corruption, and is seen as a rebuke of the policies of Ronald Reagan. The success of RoboCop created a franchise comprising the sequels RoboCop 2 and RoboCop 3, children's animated series, multiple live-action television shows, video games, comic books, toys, clothing, and other merchandise. A reboot, also called RoboCop, was released in 2014. A direct sequel to the original 1987 film, tentatively titled RoboCop Returns, is in development as of 2020. It ignores other entries in the series. In a near-future dystopia, Detroit is on the brink of societal and financial collapse. Overwhelmed by crime and dwindling resources, the city grants the megacorporation Omni Consumer Products control over the Detroit Police Department. OCP Senior President Dick Jones demonstrates ED-209, a law enforcement droid designed to supplant the police. ED-209 malfunctions and brutally kills an executive, allowing ambitious junior executive Bob Morton to introduce the chairman to his own project, RoboCop. Meanwhile, Officer Alex Murphy is transferred to the Metro West Precinct. Murphy and his new partner, Ann Lewis, pursue notorious criminal Clarence Boddicker and his gang. The gang ambushes and tortures Murphy until Boddicker fatally shoots him. Morton has Murphy's corpse converted into RoboCop, a powerful and heavily armored cyborg with no memory of his former life. RoboCop is programmed with three prime directives, serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law. A fourth prime directive, Directive 4, is classified. RoboCop is assigned to Metro West and hailed by the media for his brutally efficient campaign against crime. Lewis suspects he is Murphy, recognizing the unique way he holsters his gun, a trick Murphy learns to impress his son. During maintenance, RoboCop experiences a nightmare of Murphy's death. He leaves the station and encounters Lewis, who addresses him as Murphy. RoboCop is assigned to Metro West and held by the media for his brutally efficient campaign against crime. Lewis suspects he is Murphy, recognizing the unique way he holsters his gun, a trick Murphy learned to impress his son. During maintenance, RoboCop experiences a nightmare of Murphy's death. He leaves the station and encounters Lewis, who addresses him as Murphy. While on patrol, RoboCop arrests Emil, who recognizes Murphy's mannerisms, furthering RoboCop's recall. RoboCop then uses the police database to identify Emil's associates and review Murphy's police record. RoboCop recalls further memories while exploring Murphy's former home, his wife and son having moved away following his death. Elsewhere, Jones gets Boddicker to murder Morton in revenge for Morton's attempting to usurp his position at OCP. Robocop tracks down the Boddicker gang and a shootout occurs. He brutally assaults Boddicker who confesses to working for Jones. 
Robocop attempts to kill Boddicker until his programming directs him to uphold the law. He attempts to arrest Jones at OCP Tower, but Directive 4 is activated, a fail-safe measure to neutralize Robocop when acting against an OCP executive. Jones admits his culpability in Morton's death and releases an ED-209 to destroy Robocop. Although he escapes, Robocop is assaulted by the police force on OCP's orders and is badly damaged. Lewis helps Robocop escape to an abandoned steel mill to repair himself. Angered by OCP's underfunding and short staffing, the police force goes on strike and Detroit descends into chaos as riots break out throughout the city. Jones frees Boddicker and his remaining gang, arming them with high-powered weaponry to destroy Robocop. At the steel mill, Boddicker's men are quickly eliminated, but Lewis is badly injured and Robocop becomes trapped under steel girders. Even so, he kills Boddicker by stabbing him in the throat with his data spike. Robocop confronts Jones at OCP Tower during a board meeting, revealing the truth behind Morton's murder. Jones, in order to escape, takes the old man hostage but is promptly fired from OCP, nullifying Directive 4 and allowing Robocop to shoot him. The old man compliments Robocop shooting and asks his name. Robocop replies, Murphy. Robocop was conceived in the early 1980s by Universal Pictures junior story executive and aspiring screenwriter Edward Neumeyer. A fan of robot-themed science fiction films such as Star Wars as well as action films, Neumeyer had developed an interest in mature comic books while researching them for potential adaptation. The 1982 science fiction film Blade Runner was filming on the Warner Brothers lot behind Neumeyer's office and he unofficially joined the production to learn about filmmaking. His work there gave him the idea for Robocop. He said, I had this vision of a far distant Blade Runner type world where there was an all mechanical cop coming to a sense of real human intelligence. He spent the next few nights writing a 40 page outline. While researching story submissions for Universal, Neumeyer came across a student video by aspiring director Michael Miner. The pair met and discussed their similar concepts. Neumeyer's Robocop and Miner's Robo-themed rock music video. In a 2014 interview, Miner said he also had an idea called Supercop. The pair formed a working partnership and spent about two months discussing the idea, plus two to three months writing together at night and over weekends, outside their regular jobs. Their collaboration was initially difficult because they did not know each other well and had to learn how to constructively criticize each other. Neumeyer was influenced to kill off his main character early on by the psychological horror film Psycho, whose heroine was killed in the first act. Inspired by comic books and his personal experience with corporal culture, Neumeyer wanted to satirize 1980s business culture, noting the increasing aggression of American financial services in response to growing Japanese influence and that a popular book on Wall Street was The Book of Five Rings, a 17th century text discussing how to kill more effectively. He also believed that Detroit's declining automobile industry was due to increased bureaucracy. ED-209's malfunction in the OCP boardroom was based on Neumeyer's office daydreams about a robot bursting into a meeting and killing everyone. Miner described the film as comic relief for a cynical time during the presidency of Ronald Reagan when economist Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys ransacked the world, enabled by Reagan and the Central Intelligence Agency. So when you have this cop who works for a corporation that insists I own you and he still does the right thing, that's the core of the film. 
Around six to eight months were spent searching for an actor to portray Alex Murphy slash Robocop. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Michael Ironside, Rutger Hauer, Tom Berenger, Armand Asante, Keith Carradine, and James Remar were considered. Orion favored Schwarzenegger, the star of their recent success, The Terminator, but he and other actors were considered too physically imposing to be believable in the Robocop costume. It was thought that Schwarzenegger would look like the Michelin Man or Pillsbury Doughboy. Others were reluctant because their face would be largely concealed by a helmet. Davison said Weller was the only person who wanted to be in the film. The low salary he commanded was in his favor, as was his good body control from martial arts training and marathon running. And his fan base in the science fiction genre following his performance in the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the 8th dimension. Verhoeven said he was hired because his chin was very good. Weller spent months working with Mime Moni Yakim, developing a fluid movement style with a stiff ending while wearing an American football uniform to approximate the finished costume. Weller said working with Verhoeven was his main reason for choosing the role over appearing in King Kong Lives. Robocop's costume was not finished until some time until filming. This did not impact the filming schedule, but it denied Weller the month of costume rehearsal he had expected. Weller was immediately frustrated with the costume because it was too cumbersome for him to move as he had practiced. He spent hours trying to adapt. He also struggled to see through the thin helmet visor and interact or grab objects while wearing the gloves. He fell out with Verhoeven and was eventually fired with Lance Henriksen considered as a replacement, but because the costume was built for Weller, he was encouraged to mend his relationship with Verhoeven. Yakim helped Weller develop a slower, more deliberate movement style. Weller's experience in the costume was worsened by warm weather, which caused him to sweat off up to three pounds per day. He began taking prescription medication to cope with stress-induced insomnia, which left him filming scenes while intoxicated. Verhoeven gained a reputation for verbal aggression and unsociable behavior on set, although Kurtwood Smith said that Verhoeven never yelled at actors but was too engrossed in filming to be sociable. Weller spent his time between filming with the actors who played his enemies, including Kurtwood Smith, Ray Wise, and Calvin Young, who maintained healthy lifestyles that supported Weller in his training for the New York City Marathon. Industry experts were optimistic about the theatrical summer of 1987. The season focused on genre films, science fiction, horror, and fantasy that were proven to generate revenue, if not industry respect. Other films, such as Roxanne, Full Metal Jacket, and The Untouchables, were targeted at older audiences, those aged over 25, who had been ignored in recent years by films targeted at teenagers. The action comedy Beverly Hills Cop 2 was predicted to dominate the theaters, but many other films were expected to perform well, including the action-adventure Ishtar, comedy films Harry and the Hendersons, Who's That Girl, Spaceballs, and the action film Predator, and sequels such as Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, and the latest James Bond film, The Living Daylights. Along with the musical La Bamba, Robocop was predicted to be a sleeper hit, having received positive feedback before release, including both a positive industry screening and multiple pre-release screenings that demonstrated the studio's confidence in the film. Marketing the film was considered difficult. Writing for the Los Angeles Times, Jack Matthews described Robocop as a terrible title for a movie that anyone would expect an adult to enjoy. Orion 
head of marketing Charles Glenn said it had a certain liability. It sounds like Robbie the Robot or GoBots or something else. It's nothing like that. The campaign began three months before the film's release. 5,000 adult-oriented and family-friendly trailers were sent to the theaters. Orion Promotions director Jan Keen said children and adults responded positively to the RoboCop character. Miguel Ferrer recalled a theater audience unfavorably laughing at the trailer, which he found disheartening. Models and actors in fiberglass RoboCop costumes made appearances in cities throughout North America. The character appeared at a motor racing event in Florida, a laser show in Boston, a subway in New York City, and children could take their picture with him at the Sherman Oaks Galleria in Los Angeles. RoboCop began a wide North American release on July 17, 1987. During its opening weekend, the film exceeded expectations by earning $8 million from 1,580 theaters, an average of $5,068 per theater. It was the weekend's number one film, ahead of a re-release of the 1937 animated film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which earned $7.5 million, and the horror sequel Jaws the Revenge, which earned $7.2 million, both of which were also in their first week of release. RoboCop retained the number one position in its second weekend, with an additional gross of $6.3 million, ahead of Snow White and the debuting comedy Summer School. In its third weekend, RoboCop was the fourth highest grossing film, with a gross of $4.7 million, behind La Bamba and the debuts of the horror film The Lost Boys and The Living Daylights. Critics noticed influences in the film from the action of The Terminator and Aliens, and the narratives of Frankenstein and Repo Man in the television series Miami Vice. RoboCop built a distinct futuristic vision for Detroit, as Blade Runner had done for Los Angeles. Multiple critics struggled to identify the film's genre, writing that it combines social satire and philosophy with elements of action, science fiction, thrillers, westerns, slapstick comedy, romance, snuff films, superhero comics, and camp without being derivative. The Los Angeles Times believed the violent scenes succeeded in creating experiences of sadism and poignancy simultaneously. Other reviewers were more critical, including Walter Goodman, who believed RoboCop's satire and critiques of corporate corruption were excuses to indulge in violent visuals. The Chicago Reader found the violence had a brooding, agonized quality, as if Verhoeven were both appalled and fascinated by it, and the Christian Science Monitor said critical praise for the nasty film demonstrated a preference for style over substance. A central theme in RoboCop is the power of corporations. Those depicted in the film are corrupt and greedy, privatizing public services, and gentrifying entirety of Detroit. A self-described hippie who grew up during the Watergate scandal and Vietnam War, Miner was critical of the pro-business policies of President Reagan and believed Detroit to be a city destroyed by American corporations. The Detroit presented in the film is described by various authors as one beset by rape, crime, and Reaganomics gone awry where gentrification is equivalent to crime and unfettered capitalism of Reagan-era politics results in corporations conducting liberal war as the police become a profit-driven entity. Miner said that out-of-control crime was a particularly Republican or right-wing fear, but RoboCop puts the blame for drugs and crime on advancing technology and the privatization of public services, such as hospitals, prisons, and the police. The criticism of Reagan-era policies was in the script, but Verhaven did not personally understand urban politics, such as privatizing prisons. 
Weller said that trickle-down economics espoused by Reagan were bullshit and did not work fast enough for those in need. Happy anniversary, RoboCop. You were for the culture. Birthdays for July 17th. Turning 51 today is American basketball player and coach Calbert Chaney. Happy 57th birthday to English American actor, film director, and screenwriter Alex Winter. Happy 58th birthday to American actress and producer Heather Langenkamp. Turning 70 years old today is American actor, singer, and producer David Hasselhoff. Happy 73rd birthday to English bass player, songwriter of the band Black Sabbath, Geezer Butler and a very special happy 87th birthday to Canadian actor and producer Donald Sutherland. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Please make sure to check out Happen in the 90s every Thursday with my buddy Matt G. Crush Gazin with Kintra on Wednesdays. Don't worry, be movies with Amanda and Wade and B3F Podcast with Joey and Steve. All right, y'all be cool. Summer. Suck my dick. Peace.